Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Asia Ventilation Forum or the ABF podcast. This is the ICU Tips and Tricks series. And today, uh, we are really happy to have Professor Kara Hodgson, who's going to speak on the topic of how I mobilize patients in the ICU. My name is Jason Poir, and Professor Hodgson is the head of the Division of Clinical Trials and Cohort Studies at the School of Public Health and Preventive Medicine at Monash University. She's the Deputy Director of the Australian and New Zealand Intensive Care Research Centre at Monash University and a Specialist ICU Physiotherapist at the Alfred. She's also the lead author of the team study on early active mobilisation during mechanical ventilation in the ICU, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in November 2022. So uh, thank you again, Professor Hobson, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Fua. Um, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Um, first question, could you briefly summarise what um, ICU-acquired weakness is or about how common it is? Sure. So ICU-acquired weakness is when a patient who's critically ill develops bilateral weakness, which is from no other known cause other than the fact that they've been critically ill. Uh, and we think that it occurs in about 40% of patients who are mechanically ventilated. That, that range is huge in observational studies, so it can be from a bit over 10% to nearly as many as 90% in, in different observational studies. But um, a, a recent systematic review pulled all of those studies and said that the most common uh, risk of ICU-acquired weakness was about 40% of cohorts. And we know that it's more than what occurs with just bed rest. So if you put a normal person, like an astronaut, when they've been put in space and they're just in bed rest, their muscles atrophy. But what happens in critical illness is quite different. And we think that because critical illness causes the um, cytokine storm, that there's changes in the microvascular um, parts of the muscles, that there are metabolic derangements, that there are electrical alterations, and that there's a, a, a degradation in the protein and, and a loss of, of protein within the muscle. And we know from studies that have been done by other fabulous researchers, Zudin Pithachiri, for example, who looked at cross-sectional area of uh, rectus femoris muscle in critically ill patients, that the loss of cross-sectional area occurs really rapidly from the admission to ICU within the first seven days, and that there's actually a change in the ratio of protein to DNA within the muscle. So it's not just that the muscle loses mass, but it's also that the, the, the muscle fibres themselves actually change in terms of the protein to DNA ratio. Right, right. And, and the impact on patients and family must be quite significant. That's right. So we've had other studies that have shown that ICU-acquired weakness is associated with poor long-term survival. So um, Greet Hermans did a fabulous study that was published. It was very elegant in the Blue Journal, and she showed that um, patients who had ICU-acquired weakness, and she, she categorised them into mild, moderate, and severe ICU-acquired weakness, and patients who had severe ICU-acquired weakness had um, a higher risk of mortality out to 180 days compared to patients with moderate or mild ICU-acquired weakness. And it was very clear that the more severe the weakness, the, the less likely you were to survive. Right, right. So, so um, your team uh, published the team study in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, just a couple of months ago. Um, could, could you let us know what, what made you do it? Yes, of course. So when I joined 
um, Monash University over a decade ago, um, there was already some great work being done by international researchers looking at um, ICL quad weakness and um, early mobilisation as a potential intervention to mitigate the effects of ICL quad weakness. So we already had people like Dale Needham from Johns Hopkins who were advocating for early mobilisation. We had the fabulous study that had been published by Bill Schweikert that showed that early mobilisation compared to usual care in his um, intensive care unit, this was across two, two intensive care units, and just in 100 patients, they showed that starting uh, mobilisation early uh, improved functional independence at hospital discharge. And, you know, within by the time I started at Monash, there was already um, a program of research across the world where people were starting to get very excited about early mobilisation because of the results of the, the study by Bill Schweiker that was published in The Lancet. And it made us really change our thinking about rehabilitation in ICU, where previously we'd waited until patients were very stable and uh, potentially extubated and ready to be moved to the ward before we started rehab, to thinking about whether we actually started to re needed to rehabilitate patients while they were on life support and, and still potentially, uh, you know, stable but but still receiving life support. And, and so we've shifted our thinking that early mobilisation might need to start early. Across Australia and New Zealand, we thought that, that, you know, that sounded like a potentially really exciting intervention, but we didn't understand the risk versus the benefit. And we thought that rather than just implementing early mobilisation, which is what a lot of um, people were advocating for, that we should actually study it in a large trial. So we started a program of research where we did um, a binational, across Australia and New Zealand, we did a binational observational study uh, to look at what was standard care at the time. And then we looked at um, a, a binational pilot study to test the intervention of very early mobilisation, um, trying to push starting as early as possible and moving to the highest level as quickly as possible for a longer duration of time to see if we could feasibly deliver that in an individual patient randomised trial, one-to-one, -one, and we could. And so we applied for funding for our larger trial. So it wasn't really until 2017 that we actually received funding for our large phase three trial, um, which was the study that was just published last year in the New England Journal of Medicine. But it's been a decade of work in this program to really get to the point where we have completed that phase three trial. Right, right. And um, what was the study design, uh, the two arms? Yes, so it was an international multi-centre randomised control trial where we randomised patients in a one-to-one -one ratio. Um, it was conducted across um, 49 sites internationally, um, including Australia and New Zealand, but also the UK, Germany, Ireland and Brazil. Uh, we had um, patients who were Essentially, the inclusion criteria were that patients needed to um, be stable enough to be able to receive uh, that, well, they needed to be adults and they needed to be intubated and expected to remain ventilated the day after tomorrow, but they needed to be sufficiently stable from both a cardiac and a respiratory perspective that they could actually um, receive the intervention, that they were potentially able to receive the intervention. And then we excluded anybody who was um, not independent in their activities of daily living in the in the month prior and then anybody who we thought wouldn't be able to either follow the exercises or participate in the rehabilitation or conduct the um, six-month follow-up because that was our primary outcome. 
So anybody who was cognitively impaired or who had a primary brain or spinal cord injury or rest in bed orders or were expected to um, were not expected to survive 180 days, they were excluded from the study. So essentially we were trying to pick a group of patients who were relatively, they were critically ill, but they had been previously well and they were expected to recover. Right. And and um, did you find a difference? No, we did not. So we our intervention, the intervention group received early mobilization um, following a standard um, formula where we essentially assessed their strength. Um, then we desedated them and we looked for adequate adequate physiological stability on the day. We performed a mobility assessment, and according to that mobility assessment, we exercised them at the highest level possible. If they were able, for example, to sit over the edge of the bed, we aimed for 30 minutes of active exercise per day. If they were able to stand, we aimed for 45 minutes per day um, and so on. And we tried to move them up through the sort of um, mobility milestones as quickly as possible. Um, the intervention also included interdisciplinary discussion, a safety checklist, sedation minimisation, and we used the senior physios that were available in each unit but unfortunately, we did not find a difference between the two groups. So our primary outcome was days alive and out of hospital to day 180. And we calculated that by 180 minus any days in hospital, in inpatient rehab or in a nursing home. And um, if a patient died at any time before day 180, they received zero days alive and out of hospital. Um, and as you know, we found no difference in the primary outcome for days alive and out of hospital. Um, we also found no difference for any of our secondary outcomes. Um, and the, we did find a 2.5 times increase in adverse events uh, for patients who received early mobilisation compared to usual care. So um, it was disappointing for the physios around the world because I think that this is a study that they had really bought into and everybody was very excited that we thought that it might make a difference. But I think that one thing that I really want to highlight is that our usual care group was very good. So we were um, conducting this study in hospitals where um, I think that early mobilisation was something that was already occurring. So if you think about the, the period of time that we conducted this study from 2017 to 2022, there were seven international guidelines that recommended the use of early mobilisation in ICU. So there was significant um, practice change I think, from 2017 onwards, where early mobilisation became standard care in our ICUs. So our usual care group were 89% um, of them sat over the edge of the bed at some stage while they were in the ICU, and 77% of them stood at some time in the ICU. Um, and the usual care group, the median time to sitting over the edge of the bed was four days from randomization, and the median time to standing was five days from randomization. So I think it's really important when you interpret the results of our team trial that it's not comparing early mobilization to no mobilization. It's comparing very early mobilization at a higher dose. Um, you know, higher dose in terms of higher in terms of the highest level of activity, mobility milestones, but also um, increased duration of time and aiming to get to that highest level as quickly as possible compared to standard care, where standard care was still a very good level of mobilisation. Um, and while we didn't find a difference between the groups and, in fact, the point estimate favoured the, um, the usual care group, we did find increased adverse events. So I think 
that this study has informed a little bit about dose of mobilisation. It's certainly, I don't think the results of the team trial should be interpreted that we should stop early mobilisation in the ICU because that is not what the usual care group did. It was actually, I think there is a lot of units around the world that cannot achieve the usual care um, that we have achieved in the study. Um, and our obviously our the intensive care units who put up their hand to participate in the team trial I think were probably pro-mobilisation anyway and they, you know, that was something that they believed in and, and that's why they were participating in the study. I do think what this trial tells us is that the higher dose started early, pushing patients to the highest level quickly and for a longer duration causes some adverse events. Right, right. And, and then shortly after your, your publication um, in the Lancet Respiratory Medicine, uh, Bakhti Patel and colleagues from the University of Chicago um, they published their findings of their single-center study, which suggests, and I'm quoting for this from the study, um, uh, quote-unquote, uh, early mobilization might be the first known intervention to improve long-term cognitive impairment in ICU survivors after mechanical ventilation. Um, could you weigh in on this and how does this Yes, report yes. So I, I think, first of all, I'm, I think I want to say congratulations to Dr. Patel and their group because, you know, these studies of complex interventions are really difficult. They're hard to conduct. Um, they take a long time and a lot of buy-in from everybody. And I think that you can see from um, the study that was published in the Lancet Respiratory Medicine by Dr. Patel that it took them, um, you know, over well, from 2011 to 2019 to complete their study in just 200 patients. That's a huge amount of time and undertaking. But when you think about the amount of time that that took, there's been a huge practice change in early mobilisation. I mean, in 2011, we were still just talking about um, Bill Schweikert's trial. And by, you know, 2019, we have over seven international guidelines advocating for early mobilisation to be conducted in the ICU as usual care. And when you look at the details of um, the Patel paper, um, in their usual care group, over 50% of their patients received no early mobilisation in the ICU at all. So that is completely different to the usual care arm in our study. And in fact, our usual care arm in the team trial probably looks more like the intervention arm in the Patel study. So um, I think that this the, the research question that's being asked in the Patel study is very different. It's it's almost comparing um, mobilisation to no mobilisation as opposed to the team trial where we were asking a question about a dose response in, in, in uh, intensive care units that are already providing a good level of mobilisation as, as part of standard care, which is what's recommended by international guidelines. I see. I, I suspect uh, many, many, many uh, intensivist nurses uh, in ICU physiotherapies are, are dying to know the answer to my next question. Uh, so, Professor Hodgson, if you could summarize uh, based on your study uh, in the year 2023, how early and at what dose uh, patients in the ICU should receive mobilization, what, what would you say? I think, okay, there's a, first of all, I want to say, perhaps before I answer that question, what I want to say is some work that we're still doing with the results of the team trial. First of all, I want to say that um, our subgroup analysis showed that there was no difference between any of our pre-specified subgroups, but we have identified other subgroups where there's heterogeneity of treatment effect. And we think that we've identified one group of patients in particular where there's harm and that that uh, may have potentially affected the results of the team trial because, you know, it's such a strong effect. Now, this is going to be a post hoc 
non-pre-specified analysis. So it's just hypothesis generating, but it's a pretty strong result. So, so the first thing I want to say is that there will be more publications coming out from the team trial where we're going to be able to speak about particular groups of patients and whether they might, um, with early mobilisation, whether there's an effect in terms of benefit or harm. I think that's really important that we delve a little bit deeper into the data that we've got now. There's also going to be some individual patient data meta-analyses available. Um, I know one group that are already working on that um, and it's under review, but we hope that we'll be able to in, uh, inform further IPDMAs with the team trials, things how it's the largest trial so far. Um, and we would like to be able to update IPDMAs to also look at some of the heterogeneity of treatment effect to really be able to describe which patients benefit most. Um, and this, this speaks to patient selection because I think that, you know, what we really want to know is as we select our patients for early mobilisation, is it going to benefit them or is it going to cause harm? In the team study, we're also going to look at a, um, a, a descriptive paper where we describe our adverse events and we try and tease out which patients had adverse events and, and when they occurred and whether that was um, associated with the duration of exercise or the highest level of mobilisation um, and at what time that occurred. So, um, there's there's a lot more data. So to be able to answer your question well about what to do now, I feel like we're still working with our data to really be able to inform readers properly. But what I will say at the moment is that if you had to advise people how to mobilise patients, I would base it on the usual care arm of our team trial. And that means that um, you would use uh, early mobilisation in about nearly 90% of patients can sit over the edge of the bed at some stage in the ICU. And most patients can start, in our study, it was from four days from randomization. So that's about six days from um, ICU admission. So if you aim to be sitting patients out, out of um, over the edge of the bed, you know, before the end of the first week, you're doing really well. And before that, um, you know, if they're able, if they're physiologically stable based on, you know, we have some criteria that have been published around safety of mobilising patients on mechanical ventilation, um, If you and that's sort of referenced in the team paper. So for anybody who wants to look that up, please look at the manuscript um, uh, in New England. But in the meantime, I think if you aim to mobilise patients over the edge of the bed, sort of within the first week, but based on whether the patient is safe to do so. And I know that um, around the world there are people who are really advocating for us needing to desedate our patients more early, that we really need to focus on this as a bundle of care. It requires really good interdisciplinary discussion. Um, so I think that I would take the best bits of our intervention group, which were the interdisciplinary discussion and the desedation and the strength assessment and using the safety checklist, and I would combine that with what we did in the usual care arm, which is just starting a little bit later and being perhaps a little bit shorter with our treatment time so that we're not really pushing our patients until they um, you know, develop an adverse event. And if patients do develop an adverse event, it's likely that they will develop another adverse event. There were a lot of patients who had repeated adverse events in our in our database. So I think what I would say is that, um, you know, it, it's okay to mobilise, to do active exercises in bed until you're happy that a patient is stable enough to mobilise over the edge of the bed or out of bed. Right, right. That's very useful. Any final words you have for the audience? 
No, just that I'm, uh, I would like to say a huge thank you. The team trial was such a wonderful collaboration. Uh, you know, it wasn't just, we have a massive management committee. So a big shout out to our wonderful management committee. I think, you know, there was 13 of us on the management committee and everybody um, put in a huge amount of work. But also we had so many people at the sites, um, medical staff, nursing staff and physiotherapists who were helping to screen, randomise and, and lead the intervention and then collect the data and, and deliver it to us. And then follow up the patients um, we had very little loss to follow up so as you know to do these big international trials it takes um, you know it takes a real community of people and um, I'm really really grateful to the community of ICU researchers and clinicians who backed the team trial so just a huge thank you to them. Thank you Professor Austin. Thank, so you, we get, um, thank you we've come to the end of this uh, ABF podcast um, but really uh, I, I would also like to extend our thanks on behalf of the international ICU community for, for the great work that uh, you and your team and your colleagues have done because um, it is data like this that really inform how we uh, people, we, we healthcare workers in the ICU try our best to help patients in the ICU. So, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Fua. Um, So this, this uh, podcast is available on Spotify as well as YouTube. Uh, you just Google ABF and you'll find it. Um, if you like it, please uh, feel free to share it with your colleagues, subscribe, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Till the next time, take care. Bye.